I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have Dr. Ni Chang Liang here with me, who is so many things to me. Um, she's a friend. She is the creator of the Mindful Healthcare Collective, which I have been a part of since the beginning of COVID, um, which we'll talk about in the in um, in the actual interview. Uh, she's a award winning award winning pulmonologist, and she is an Asian American woman activist. Um, who is just so incredible and such a creator of, of many things and a bringer together of people. So Ni Chang, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for that warm introduction and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Yay. Um, so I guess to start, I mean, you and I have been having these conversations um, in our, in our, you know, one-on-one -on -one and in our group about the way that I think there's like a personal aspect of, of, the way that you're experiencing racism, particularly during COVID. Um, and then there's your bigger kind of activism piece of how you started to get more pulled in, in finding your voice. So I'd love to hear from you what led you to getting more vocal and active in, in the space. Um, and if you are open to sharing some of the experiences that you've had uh, during COVID or before, particularly like I don't know, I guess I'm going to reframe my question a little bit and that like, I'm Jewish and I have experienced some persecution and I also know that it's not the same as anti-blackness in America. Um, I think what you have experienced is probably a lot more than what I have experienced, but how you hold space for what you've experienced and for other types of racism in our country, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I'm happy to share just starting off with the recent events of the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. that being a Chinese American, Chinese Taiwanese American pulmonologist, uh, where the virus itself was given like an ethnicity. Yeah. And I know that that's not necessarily unique um, in history in terms of labeling pandemics, et cetera, but the way that it was used um, was that this ethnicity became weaponized and then it became weaponized against like all Asian Americans um, in the way that especially our past political administration um, was for instance, using it. Uh, and so in, in that context, treating patients on the front lines and kind of being on the receiving end of microaggressions that I name microaggressions because I, I truly doubt that there was harm intended from at least a particularly poignant example that I'm going to share with you is that one of my patients asked me basically how much I thought the Chinese government owed the United States because of the pandemic. Uh, yeah. And to which I was in a state of shock. I had to kind of ground into my mindfulness practices in order to not launch into a 
full out verbal attack of hurt and probably shame mixed in there of anger um, with my patient. And basically coming out from that, realizing that perhaps he didn't see me as Chinese, Taiwanese, American, even though my name, the way that I look would be pretty obvious. And so I couched that experience as an opportunity for me to bring in my mindfulness practice, bringing in the curiosity piece of like, where is this question coming from? Mm. What's the intent of the question? What were objectives? And then also honoring like at the same time, the hurt that I was feeling, the anger that I was feeling uh, very much so like in my chest at the time of the, of the encounter. Um, but then really being authentic about the curiosity of like, what do you mean by that? Just the question of, of getting better clarity about his intent. And I think that from that place of curiosity, that in and of itself and really taking the time to listen helped in the moment diffuse a lot of the the anger and the hurt that I was feeling in that particular moment so that I could respond in a way that was um, compassionate and yet authentic and also like challenging of his of his question and his implied assumptions of what that question was meaning um, in a way that was more skillful as opposed to reactionary and volatile. Yeah. So how did it work out? I think it worked out as best as it could have uh, because then I used facts to continue the conversation and the conversation and the, the tension kind of diffused after that. Okay. That's so, that's so impressive. Yeah, I think there's very few people who are going to take that moment and have that mindful presence to say, I'm a little curious about that question and tell me what you mean, but that's such a great approach. And I think missing from so much, I'm air quoting dialogue here for uh, podcast listeners who can't see this on video, like dialogue that's not really dialogue. And it sounds like you actually engaged in a authentic dialogue with him about it. And it's not to say that like the anger and the hurt weren't there. It's more that um, there was holding space for all of it, right? Like yeah. I could hold space for curiosity at the same time as honoring the anger and the hurt that I was feeling and still feel to this day about that question. Um, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. So how, how have you, cause I've, I've been able to see from a close distance you're getting more and more involved in, in the anti-racism and social justice space, particularly within the medical community. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how, how that's come to be and, and what, what kind of work you're doing in that space? It really, I think, heightened because of the over 100% increase in Asian American Pacific Islander hate crimes that had been reported across many major cities in the United States. So just from that fact, my response was, 
that I can no longer remain silent about what was going on. So interestingly, when I first came to the United States as an immigrant at the age of five, um, and after reading the book Minor Feelings um, by Kathy Hong Park, there is this desire that I recognize in my youth to blend in mm. with white culture. That I didn't want to be seen as an outsider, even though like my skin and the way that I talked when I was going into kindergarten certainly um, prevented me from doing. Um, I was very much other, quote unquote, and also for the podcasters and air quotes. But then, and I think to a certain extent uh, that went on through childhood and into, um, into high school, but it wasn't until college that there was a newfound appreciation and newfound recognition in the beauty that lies within diversity of kind of owning my culture and owning my Chinese Taiwanese Americanness um, in a way that's unique from being identified as strictly American or strictly Chinese slash Taiwanese that I'm kind of this amalgamation of the varied cultures from my ancestors, my parents, the way that I was raised, and then being embedded into, into American culture. It wasn't until college that I, that I, I think, acknowledged that. But even more recently, though, the atrocities that have been committed haven't been highlighted in my life in the way that it has been this past year to the point where there was kind of a tipping point where I had to, or at least I felt like I had to get over my discomfort about speaking up and speaking out and uh, really sharing with others about what was happening elsewhere, not just locally within my own microcosm of a, of a life, but also beyond that, um, that knowing that I had to speak out for the sake of communicating facts about what was happening uh, and how injustice was more pervasive than, than people had potentially originally imagined, especially amongst Asian American Pacific Islanders, just how wrong it was. And so I think from, a, from an alignment standpoint, touching in with my own desire to bring compassion to other human beings, this was kind of my way of doing that in spreading what I saw as injustices to people who would be willing to listen. And then also like speaking about my truth and what my family and I have gone through too, as a example. So that's kind of been the process. I'm still like in the discomfort of it for sure. Mm -hmm. I definitely uh, recognize that and I um, am finding myself in my zone of discomfort when it comes to this, but in a good way. Yeah. That there is definitely capacity for growth and there is capacity for me to be the change I want to see, however minute 
or big the impacts might be um, in this arena right now for me. One of the things that Maisha talks about a lot in the work that we do together is she's like, and for anyone listening who doesn't know Maisha, Dr. Maisha Clearborn, she's a black woman and she's my business partner for conscious anti-racism. She's like, this is uncomfortable for me too. I don't enjoy talking about my, cause she's like, these are my traumas. These are the traumas of our people. No one wants to go out there. I mean, some people do, I shouldn't say that, but like her point is that like, it's not easy to share these personal injuries, these personal traumas, even if it's teaching and making a bigger impact, it's never easy. And it doesn't really ever stop feeling uncomfortable, which is like, I guess, good and bad. (laughs) um, that, That feeling like we're all in this together. It's uncomfortable for all of us. And also, um, you know, that's, that's part of the, part of the process and recognizing the pain of what, of what people who have been marginalized have, have been through. Um, so thank you for bringing that in here and, and for naming that. Um, how has the response been in your family? I'm just curious, like, are people is there any like, who don't speak up or don't, you know, what, how has that landed with your family? My parents have been, um, really on also somewhat the receiving end of some of the anti-racism over the last year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and frankly, I don't even know that they know that I'm necessarily speaking out about it in this way, uh, largely on like social media and, and having written articles about it. Um, though, and I'm not sure why that is. I, I think part of it is that they're, they're not, they don't know, they're not in the audience of, of where I'm usually, mm. uh, publicizing, um, or sharing my story. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, my brother and my sister-in-law and my my husband are tremendously supportive of of speaking um, my truth and um, I think they're they're welcoming of it um, and yet at the same time I also think that they're also not sure what to do with it too because it's a new frontier for all of us yeah. and so we'll see what happens if they if they uh, want me to censor or any aspect of that. Um, but thus far they've all been quite supportive. Um, and the other recognition is that like, if I share from a place of personal experience in my story, I also would challenge that Like it's my story to tell. And so who is anyone else to, to tell me what I was or was not supposed to share or feel during a particular part of my life that was particularly mm-hmm. uncomfortable too. Yeah. Um, how, how has it been re- like, I, I feel like you've gotten a lot of really great opportunities to speak out. You had an article published on Kevin MD and within your California thoracic society, I believe is, is where you're doing, uh, some of this work as well. If, if I'm mistaken, please correct me. Um, how do you feel like it's being received on that end. Interestingly about that Kevin MD article, it was published before um, the the 
mass murder that happened in Georgia that really mm -hmm. like galvanized a lot of the AAPI anti-racist movement of this past year. Um, and so it was interesting in that I had published that beforehand, but then it became relevant even more so like later on during the year. Um, and so, yes, definitely tremendous support and acknowledgement and resonation, reson, resonate, resonate, resonated a lot with, with other Asian American professionals, um, especially Asian American physicians. So that, that story uh, that I published definitely had much broader reach than I had anticipated it would have upon original publication. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with the Mindfulness for Healthcare Summit uh, that was organized by mindful.org, um, I had an opportunity to be part of an interview on mindful anti-racism and shared my stories there as well. Uh, so that was an unexpected kind of opportunity to, to speak my truth and have a platform in, in sharing also within the constructs of, of medical practice and how systemic racism um, and health disparities are so prevalent, especially in my field of practicing medicine and pulmonary medicine notably as well. Uh, so a lot of welcome support there as well. Um, and also just so much gratitude for being sometimes like the only East Asian physician on X, Y, and Z panel that's speaking out on this as well. So recognizing that I am sometimes alone in being the lone voice on a panel or at a conference, uh, but knowing that I am okay with that however uncomfortable, because if not me, then who mm. is the question that I ask myself too. Um, and then through the California Thoracic Society, really excited about having you also be part of our expert panel. Um, through, through American Thoracic Society, I do wanna give some kudos to how much programming there was this past year at the virtual international conference mm -hmm. on health disparities and the, the programming around that topic. So, um, so it's, it's been a long time coming that international conferences, national organizations in medicine have protected time to finally share about these uncomfortable and yet like very necessary topics in anti-racism and health disparities it's so it's so interesting to see the like beauty of zoom and how it's kind of reframed or re redesigned or reimagined how we convene and how we come together and all these wonderful things you can throw them together in a week or with a month's notice because people aren't having to fly out and you can you know get these amazing people together that maybe would take six months or nine months to get all those people in the same space. So it's, it, that's been, I think, one of the really interesting things I was just talking to, um, the, uh, the chief of hospital medicine at Emory. And he was saying that they are probably not going to go back to live grand rounds because, and for anyone listening, who's not medical grand rounds is like for each major department, like surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, 
once a week, generally there's like a big lecture that's kind of cutting edge or some topic that's beyond just like medical knowledge. It's something that's new or, or medical culture. And so he said they have, you know, hundreds of people coming now, whereas before there would be 35 people that would show up live. So they may not even go back. Have you experienced similar things in, in your medical communities? In the California Thoracic Society, because the in-person meeting in Carmel is almost like a historic structure that's been set into the the backbone of the society mm-hmm. that I I definitely miss the in-person conference, but we quickly pivoted to a virtual platform because of that. Um, and in terms of attendees, I'm not sure what the numbers ended up being, um, but definitely having online capability for connectedness is a silver lining for COVID for sure. Mm-hmm. As experienced by like the Mindful Healthcare Collective, like we can put on events, multiple events during the week that you've contributed to and leading as well um, with an audience that we otherwise probably would not have been able to convene on such short notice from yeah. like all across the world really. Let's, so let's talk a little bit about that. It's not it's not a specific anti-racism uh, uh, venture, but it's it's so worth mentioning because what you've put together is astounding. I mean, if you think about what what well, we've done it together, but you created the space. So, can you talk a little bit about the Mindful Healthcare Collective and um, and and how you like how the idea came to you and how you how you put it together and how, you know, you, you, you did so, I think in a very mindful, deliberate way, but what, what was that process like for you? So the, the mindful healthcare collective was born out of knowing the burnout statistics of physicians, even before the pandemic of 40 to 50%, depending on the subspecialty of physicians being burnt out and knowing that the pandemic would most likely at the time there was not any data and, the data is now just starting to kind of trickle in about burnout during the pandemic. Um, But knowing that the extreme amount of stress that healthcare professionals are going to be facing going into the pandemic uh, was going to significantly impact our well-being, it was born out of the desire to reduce suffering for the healthcare community. And I know I wasn't able to do it alone. And so I started asking really friends, friends and colleagues that I knew who had done really great work in relieving suffering, who had additional training beyond that of their medical licenses in, for you, your emotional freedom technique and all of the anti-racism work that you've been doing um, was particularly attractive for me in thinking about a broader scope of providing different types of resources. And so not just mindfulness and not just yoga for the larger community. And so thank you so much for all of your contributions to the Mindful Healthcare Collective and and the programming. Um, And then in thinking about other evidence-based resources to provide a community in a time where the pandemic can be very isolating, Mm 
So it was very important for me to have these live Zoom events where there could be gatherings and um, have leaders that had additional training to facilitate and hold space really for, for all the suffering that was going on and still is to a certain extent, but definitely probably less so than when we were in the thick of it. Yeah. Well, there's like the deceleration factor now. It's like everyone was in stress mode, like fight or flight, let's get through this. And then it's like, what just happened? You know, and by just, I mean, over the last 14, 15 months, but like even starting to process what we've been through, I think that, I think that the collective is even, I won't say even more important, but just as important now as people are starting to recognize the impact and, and get, get back to, we're doing all the air quotes today, get back to, get back to quote unquote normal, but not feeling normal. Like we aren't the same humans that we were 15 months ago and nothing is the same. Um, and how do you go back into the world and like, be like, I go sit outside at, at, on, on patios now and I drink beer on patios and I just go into restaurants, you know, like, how do you go back to that carrying this extra like piece of us that, that COVID has created within all of us? It's a very um, complex process. So I think it's really good that we're continuing to do the work. Yeah, it's super jarring um, and a lot of mixed emotions. A lot of judgment has been coming up for me as we kind of re-emerge from the home quarantine and the stricter isolation measures. Uh, now vaccines are out as well. So yeah, I, I am so glad for the state of things. Uh, and yet I can still notice the conflicting emotions that arise when I do re-enter society in ways that I hadn't in the last 14 months. Yeah. How do you use, so I did not mention this explicitly, and I think you've mentioned it, but Cheng is also a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor, an excellent one. And um, I wonder how, how you use mindfulness. You've mentioned it like in your conversation with your patient, but how do you use my, your mindfulness practice in your own, within the context of, of anti-racism or social justice, within your own lived experience, and then with the bigger, the broader picture and, and, and not just how do you use it, but how do you see it being used and the benefits of it? So mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present moment without any judgment. Another way to think about mindfulness is training our brains to be in the same place at the same time as our bodies. Mm. And so from being on the receiving end of, of microaggressions and and anti-Asian racism, having had that foundation of tuning into my body when there's discomfort or stress or anxiety provoking situation, that definitely has been a very obvious way to use mindfulness when dealing with racism has been to ground into the body sensations of discomfort. And so that like spreads beyond that of racist discomfort that goes to all different forms of stress and anxiety of, of life in general. But I think it's particularly helpful in the 
anti-racism arena because we can really be intentional about pausing and checking in with our body sensations so that we can honor what we're actually feeling from a physiologic level which then lends itself to like an exercise of like checking in with what emotions are arising for us and then what thoughts in a more objective way noticing the thoughts that arise about it mm -hmm. realizing that our thoughts are not necessarily true and um, don't necessarily have to be a trigger for us to spin into over identification of the of the thoughts and spinning into catastrophizing for instance so so mindfulness is kind of like a stopgap it allows us to notice the entire experience just as it is without trying to fight the reality of his ex existence so um so it's kind of slowed things down for me uh, in a lot of different ways in a healthy way uh so yeah so first is the noticing noticing the discomfort once you're in it honoring what your own lived experience of that discomfort is and then as you honor your lived experience oftentimes that distance between the situation and you can create the space for you to respond in a more aligned way rather than reacting yes like with your patient for example you could have just bitten his head off and been like you are racist and you are this and you are that and you have no idea what i've been through but like and that would have been probably justified <laughs> but is that is like you what did you say the 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 more uh intentional response or you said you had a word of aligned i think is what you said like what is the response that's more aligned with how you want to show up with your patient without without shoving away your feelings and i think that's the important thing that mindfulness can really help with is like I, i'm feeling this and i'm honoring it i'm not pretending that i'm not mad or pretending that everything's okay and also holding in the other hand i can choose not to let this consume me right now does that sound that's a great summary <laughs> um so it's so fascinating okay i have a question model minority that's something i've heard you use that term and i've heard that term used from a lot of our other colleagues who are not okay air quotes again but we don't need those air quotes this time who are not white passing who are not white in this world but who are also not black and i guess i don't know what other one what other minorities are considered model minority but how do you find your I, i'm i'm curious as to a your reaction to that term um b how do you use mindfulness to navigate that to, to navigate when you're like you said you you didn't want to be different you were you were not you were not wanting to have um you wanted to blend in so do you still have those tendencies in you now and 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 do you use mindfulness slash how do you use mindfulness to recognize that and and move away from it so the term model minority i learned about its historic origins from the book that i mentioned minor feelings 
uh, and it comes from some of the immigration laws that have been passed in this country that kind of handpicked Asian immigrants that were skilled to come to the U.S. So they were in essence embodying like a skill or a craft that could potentially make the U.S. a better place mm. and hence the term model from from that and then minority because we're not white we're not the majority population in the U.S. Uh, in terms of that terminology I think it's really loaded on a lot of different fronts. Growing up pre being an attending physician, um, doing a lot of my training, yes, there was definitely this desire to blend in and to do the best that I could and to excel and to uh, basically feed into my perfectionistic tendencies so much to the point where I burned myself out and also then I had cancer in my second year of pulmonary critical care fellowship. And so it was with that life-threatening diagnosis and the treatment course of which that I started to kind of let go of having to put so much pressure on myself to be the model, to be or strive to be perfect that, and really it's this past year of learning more and more about Asian American history and Asian American racism that I realize my preferred and probably healthier way of being is to show up in my authentic state. And that is as an Asian American woman professional, who's also a mom and a cancer survivor and has other expertise. And knowing that in a lot of the the crowds from professional societies to friend circles that I would potentially be like the only East Asian person at the table. Mm -hmm. And rather than uh, blending in like I had wanted to before, almost like a wallflower and staying silent and almost reinforcing prior stereotypes of East Asian women I am in some ways bucking that norm now in what I'm doing with speaking out more and being a bit more challenging of some of the prior false beliefs that I used to hold. Um, so there's almost like an accountability of like, if I feel discomfort in a situation that's happening where I feel like there's some sort of injustice um, I'm much more outspoken about it as opposed to before where there would be an automatic tendency for self-blame, um, an introspection of like, what did I do wrong or how can I make this better? Um, and now I'm, I'm much more comparatively speaking, much more outspoken, um, even if it knowingly bucks the norm, but in like a good way because I realize that if I don't speak up, then no one from my demographic is 
necessarily going to have a voice, especially because I'm the only person at the table of, right. of my particular demographic too. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum, but uh, one that might be a lifelong journey into showing up in my authentic Chinese, Taiwanese, American way, um, both in the US and also when I visit East Asia as well. Because automatically, even in, in when I visit my, um, my home country of, my home um, of Taiwan, that automatically when I walk into a store or a restaurant, like people know I'm not from there, even though my skin color, my hair color looks the same as them. So it's, I'm like not Taiwanese, Chinese, Taiwanese enough um, there. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I think I blend in, but apparently I <laughs> carry myself differently. <laughs> Just by the way I walk. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how do you use, I know you do use it. So I don't even want to say, do you use it? But like, how does, how does mindfulness, I'll, like for my own personal example, I've noticed my, my separation, my distancing myself from my own religion of Judaism. It's not a race, but it's a very cultural identity. And that does come with some, some features that a lot of Jewish people have, particularly like American Jews. So, so I've, I've noticed within myself and as I've learned more about oppression and, and white supremacy culture that I have internalized white supremacy culture against my own outward appearance of it or, or wanting to be connected to it. And that's, that's part of it for me. Um, it's, it's, it's one part of it. Um, and recognizing that within myself and being like, Oh, that's what that discomfort was, or that's what that those feelings are. How do you use your mindfulness practice to like, catch yourself falling into old habits is that something that still comes up or how do you how does your mindfulness inform your awareness of i have to speak up i'm not going to be what everyone expects me to be i think it's in noticing the discomfort when when i notice there's a misalignment or when there's like an injustice that is taking place or perhaps it's something as simple as I can offer a different perspective or a different question about that particular situation. Like for instance, in committee work um, that I'm part of. There definitely is um, the discomfort, but it's in recognizing that there is a initial misalignment and then the discomfort of the physical sensation of me having to speak up about it. Mm. Um, so mindfulness, I think, has been the vehicle by which that I can hold space for all of that. Yeah. That's how I think mindfulness shows up for me in, in the way that I'm a bit more outspoken now. That there's space for all of the discomfort as I'm kind of growing into my, my voice. Um, and even if, if people don't necessarily value my opinion or my insights, um, I'm going to say 
what I think in that context anyway. <laughs> Hi there, Dr. Jill Weiner here. This podcast is sponsored by Conscious Anti-Racism, my online course with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, created for listeners like you who are eager to learn practical tools that will help you find your place in the fight against systemic racism. We even have a CME accredited version for healthcare professionals. Visit ConsciousAntiRacism.com for more information. Now back to the episode. I love that. I love that. That's that's perfect. Because you're like checking. It's like all about your authenticity and your integrity and 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 your values and how you're going to show up. And that's that's an internal locus of of um, validation, I guess, rather than doing it to make a certain impression. Um, so I think that's so much more authentic. I think that's a great point about validation. I think mindfulness has been really helpful for me for my own struggles with validation of my own lived experience and therefore my right to kind of share it. Mm. Can you so talk about that? Like, yeah. So in terms of like the noticing of, of wanting to blend in and get quote unquote white validation, mm. like white acceptance, right. Uh, growing up that, that somehow made me okay. And then separating that um, as the years pass and really kind of coming into my own and kind of cutting the strings of, of needing external validation as much. I'll say it's a, it's a work in progress, but I definitely feel like I've come a long way over the years with regards to that. And then part of it also is that there's this, this sheer exhaustion that comes with a need for external validation, especially if it's an external, like white based validation, um, that like, Oh, like absolve myself of the need to do all of that. And like, give myself the, the freedom, the breath literally of, of coming into my own, um, using my own internal validation as a compass rather than external sources. So I think it's in the recognition of that. Um, and then all of the discomfort and all of the baggage that comes with it, uh, where mindfulness has been helpful in holding space for that in a very non-judgmental way. Cause I can definitely beat myself up about all of that. Wanting and needing external validation. Um, but I choose not to. <laughs> Like over and over again, you know, it's like a constant. It's I have to continue to choose not to feed into that. I've been thinking a lot about radical self-love recently and have started reading um, The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee, Sonia Renee Taylor. Sorry. And um, and just what what that means and not having to apologize for anything about ourselves and thinking about like where what is that thing we're comparing ourselves to? You know, what, where does it come from? Whose voice is it? How much power have we given it? Um, and does it deserve that power? You know, and, and like that goes from external appearance of ethnicity and, and race to internal and, and then, and then external appearance of body size or, or able-bodiedness and then internal things as well. So it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, how do you see, I know that 
that self-compassion and self-love are a huge part of mindfulness. How do you see that playing in? Constant work in progress. Um, because with that, that need for external validation in my not so distant past, um, there was the tendency for like self-flagellation, right? So like being hard on oneself, which in the past I thought would translate to increasing my capacity to be better or to have better academic excellence and achieve more, et cetera. But when in actuality it was counterproductive to wellness and counterproductive to authenticity. Um, and so self-compassion and self-love have I think finally made its way into more of my day-to-day -day out of a necessity from my cancer journey. Mm. And it's always a constant work in progress, like decades worth of not prioritizing oneself. Uh, it's hard to change. Yeah. But so important. Like I think self-compassion and self-love they need to like the medical schools need to incorporate that in the teaching of medicine much more than what we got. <laughs> right. I'm smiling. Cause I'm like, when I was a med student, if anyone tried to talk to me about meditation or self-love, I was like, you know, like I was, so there's just like something in that mindset of like, but, but I think that culture is changing too, because now I've turned into the person that I used to kind of mock, or I'm the one that's like, we need to meditate to feel better and take care of ourselves. And I was just like, let me take my tests and let me go get drunk. And let me like study for 15 hours a day and still think it's not enough and feel bad about myself. And then that's all I need is just to go get drunk. And that was absolutely, um, so yes, we, we need so much more of that and we need it to be a, a part of our culture rather than just like a way for it to be heard also, I think. It's really nice and relieving to see that many medical schools have embodied mindfulness as part of their curriculum. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder like, what kind of physician or how much less I might have suffered had mindfulness been introduced mm -hmm. into um, med school curriculum uh, earlier on. But now there is kind of like a tipping point, especially related to physician wellness coming hot off the heels of the pandemic. I mean, the ongoing pandemic, really. Uh, there's this attunement that needs to happen in the way medicine is practiced in the U.S. Um, there's a heightened awareness about its importance. Mm -hmm. um, and so for that, I'm, I'm grateful that that can be construed as a silver lining. Um, and yet knowing that there's so much work to be done about changing the culture of, of medicine. Yeah, gosh, yes, in so many in so many ways. I think a huge realization for me at some point in the last few years was the healthcare system is just as racist as all of the other systems and just as 
harmful, you know, in, in so many different ways. So, um, so much there that can be worked on. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'd love for you to share um, what you've got going on now, places people can find you, follow you. Please tell us about your podcast um, and anything else uh, that people who are falling in love with you can, um, can pick up more of what you are putting down. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Jill. Uh, you can find me on my website, awakenbreath.org. And... I will be teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction again come fall of 2021. And I also have a CME-accredited mindful physician course that will be launching again in August. Other uh, ways that you can find me, I um, am also a co-host of the Mindful Healers podcast with Dr. Jesse Mahoney. So we have new episodes every week on Sundays. So hope that you'll find me there. And if you're a healthcare professional, please sign up and join us over at the Mindful Healthcare Collective. We have a website by the namesake, mindfulhealthcarecollective.com that you can sign up for free. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. And also Facebook too. You can find that uh, on, on, on the Facebook group as well, the Mindful Healthcare Absolutely. Collective. Um, and are you, are you social media? Is there any social media that you want to mention? Oh yeah. Instagram. I'm nclangmd. And then on Twitter, I'm Dr. Ni Chang Lang. Okay. Is there a, a hyphen in, in Ni Chang in your Twitter? No. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I'll put all this stuff, all the, the Minor Feelings book and the, Kevin, the link to your Kevin MD article. We'll put all that in the show notes for anyone who is interested and, and links to all the social media and websites. So thank you again for joining me. Um, it's an absolute uh honor and pleasure to, to speak with you about this topic. And thank you for all the work you do and for being who you are and, um, have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much for having me. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of conscious anti-racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.